as if by some kind of magic, our grocery stores get filled with food in the middle of the night while we're sleeping. It happens every night, and every day there is food to eat. That food is always there, we just take for granted. Even the fresh tomatoes we eat in the middle of winter. It's time to meet the magicians of this food and ask, how do you make all this food up here? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there, and welcome to the part three of the 1339th uh, edition of the Food Chain Radio Program. We call this a serendipitous stroll through the world of ag vis-a-vis -vis the World Ag Expo in Tulare, California. So happy to have you aboard today. Uh, this, like I said, is part three, parts one and two. Uh, we met a lot of interesting people. And you know what? I, I bet you're going to meet, meet some very interesting people today, too. So stick with me. Uh, I am Michael Olson, and I will be guiding this stroll with comments and observations that, I hope, will help you better understand how all the food we eat, we take for granted is grown. And uh, so who is Michael Olson? Who am I? Why, do, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the way I see agriculture is, it colors my commentary. And so I want you to get to know me. So when I say things, you say, oh, that's because he's this. And this is as author of Metro Farm, The Guide to Growing for Profit in or Near the City, and as board chair of Think Local First County of Santa Cruz, it's safe to say I'm an advocate for local agriculture, food with its farmer's face on it. However, I'm also the host of the Food Chain Radio podcast, and I am fully aware that local food does not fill up the shelves with good stories. So without prejudice, I travel up and down the food chain looking for good stories about what's eating what. When I noticed uh, about the World Ag Expo across my desk, I thought about all the interesting food chain stories I might be able to find with over three, over 2.6 million square feet of exhibit space, 1,200 exhibitors from throughout agriculture, 108,000 visitors from 56 countries around the world. Think of it, folks. There's just so much possibility there. So um, I sent away for a media pass and and that's what we're going to ride on today is a media pass. So we'll get some very good access to all of these interesting people because when people see a media pass, they think you're somebody important. You represent a lot of people. And in a sense, I do. I'm representing you today uh, at the World Ag Expo. So we're going to learn as much as we can and take as much as we can home with us. Uh, so, if you would like to learn where the magic of all that food comes from, let's uh, start our serendipitous stroll through the World Ag Expo and meet the people of agriculture. On our first stop today, uh, we're going to meet some of the people whose job it is to bet real money on the future of food. With the help of Robble Bank's Melanie Burns-Smith, we are going to meet the prognosticators of Robble Bank's food and agriculture research team. 
Rabobank, which is headquartered in the Netherlands, is the world's biggest lender to agriculture and is among the world's 30th largest financial institutions. And very interesting history for Rabobank because it grew out of uh, a Dutch agriculture uh, agriculture rural co-ops. And uh, today, uh, Rabobank is actually 89 different banks throughout the Netherlands and throughout the world now um, that have combined into a single headquarters, and they have grown into a commercial bank, the lar- one of the largest in the world, and the bank that focuses almost so much of its energies on agriculture. So we're looking forward to meet the prognosticators, those people who have to look into the future and decide whether to invest uh, in the future of that particular crop or whether maybe not to invest. So uh, they're the people who roll the dice and, and say, let's do it or let's not do it. They're prognosticators, I say. But before we do, I'd like to say a few things about farming and money. And again, this is coming from the author of Metro Farm. There are 1,200 exhibitors at the World Ag Expo, and each one of them has goods or services to help farmers grow their food. All of them. Uh, I'll bet we could spend $100 million on our serendipitous stroll through the world of Ag Expo today if we had that to spend, but it would sure be fun, wouldn't it? There are a lot of things to spend money on. So, but all of those goods and services that cost money lead us to begin our stroll by asking, what role does money play in the growing of our food? Um, you know, you look at all of this, these things that cost money and go, hmm, it must cost a fortune. The best answer to the question I have heard comes from an interview I conducted with Gerd Schneider of Gerd Schneider Nurseries that is posted in my book, Metro Farm. When asked what it takes to be a successful farmer, Gerd answered, and I quote, it takes time, money, and know-how. If these ingredients are put together properly, they will at least create the potential for a successful operation. Let's talk about the ways in which time, money, and know-how are combined to successfully grow food. First, let's start with a real basic one. Let's talk about where farmers were immensely successful by farming without any money at all. Can you believe that would be possible? It certainly was. In the year 1900, America's Secretary of Agriculture traveled to Asia to see how Asian farmers grew their crops. F.H. King then published his findings in a book titled Farmers of Forty Centuries. Let's see, 40 times 100, that's 4,000 years. Farmers of 4,000 years. That statement alone says a lot, doesn't it? Here in the United States, we have farmers of a couple hundred years. Wow. Um, So what did uh, F.H. King find? Well, he found that individual farmers 
operating on tiny parcels of land, a half acre or so, that had been farmed continually for 4,000 years, were able to feed a nation of 400 million people without any of the technologies of modern times that money can buy. They had no fertilizer, they had no tractors, they had no chemicals, uh, and so on. All of those things that were for sale at the World Ag Expo were not available to those farmers of 40 centuries. There just was nothing. And yet, they fed a country of 400 million people. That's at least that's 100 million more than we have today in the United States. How did they do it? Well, in other words, the farmers of 40 centuries farmed with time and know-how, but without any money. And uh, so they were still able to do that. And here's a really interesting thing. They were able to feed a nation of 400 million people on about two-fifths of the arable land that we have here in the United States. Little incredible statistic, if you really think about it. No money. They fed 400 million people on parcels of land that had been farmed for 4,000 years. It's really amazing. So you can kind of get a sense of what F.H. King saw. It was kind of like a, an agricultural miracle when it gets right down to it. So they could do that because they had time. And that's what their, their time and their know-how was their principal investment in agriculture. And that's what they did. They had time and they had know-how. So in um, our time uh, here in the United States, we have an equation that's absolutely reversed. What we have is money and very little time, which equates to people. When we say time, that's time. farmer spends time out in the field. People are very expensive here in the United States. So if what farmers have learned to do was convert their land into money and use that money to buy the equipment, chemicals, and labor to substitute for time. Time, money, and know-how. American farmers then learned how to take maximum advantage of the economies of scale their money gave them, and consequently their farms grew in size. And so, while the farmers of 40 centuries who operated with little or, or no money were able to succeed on farms of half an acre, today's farmer who operates with money needs size to succeed, a lot of size. A hold-up Charlie Pitigliano, who was the first person we met here at the World Ag Expo. Pitigliano uh, began farming in 1976 with 375 acres and is now farming 11,000 acres of land from Fresno to Bakersfield. You know, kind of like an airline that makes money when its airplanes are flying passengers, Charlie needs to keep all of his equipment out in the field making money because if it's not making money, it's costing money. 
As Gert Schneider said, it takes time, money, and know-how. Those farmers of 40 centuries F.H. King found in Asia had very little money, so they farmed with time. Today's farmer in America has very little time, so they farm with money. Both ways of farming take know-how, and one of the prime ingredients of know-how is information. We've got to know what's happening in the world. One of the most important pieces of inf- information a farmer must know, but can really never know, is what the future holds for the price of his crops. Now, will it be a boom year? Or should I go all in and buy a new tractor? Or will, will it be a bust year? Should I hold on to my money? Farmers and those who fund them are gamblers. They have to look into the future, guess the odds, and place their bets. That being the case, it behooves ag lenders, such as Robobank, to know as much as possible about the future. The research the lenders do benefits the banks they work for and the farmers they serve. With that in mind, we're going to go meet the prognosticators of Robobank's food and agriculture research team right after this break. I am Michael Olson. This is the Food Chain radio show and podcast. We're so happy to be here with you today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go talk with the people with all that money. This is the Food Chain. Michael Olson, thank you for joining us. Stay tuned. We will be right back. And now, back to What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, What's Eating What today is we are eating up the World Ag Expo in Tulare County, California, which took place a month or so ago. And uh, we went down and spent a day with a media pass, which was nice. And we took a serendipitous stroll all around to see uh, what what the new world of agriculture looks like. And, oh, my God, goodness, is is spectacular. The equipment we're seeing is just out of this world. And, of course, all of that equipment, 1,200 exhibitors, costs money. Where do you get the money? Well, one place to get it is at the bank. And today we're going to meet the people from the world's largest agriculture bank, that is Rabobank, uh, a bank in the Netherlands that sprang to life as a rural ag co-op, 1867 or something like that, and is now grown into the world's largest ag bank. Amazing people. So we're going to meet the folks from Rabobank Rabo Research for food and agriculture. These are people who uh, look into the future and and see, try to see what the future is going to be like uh, so they can place their money on the table and say, let's do this or let's don't do this. So we're going to kick it off by meeting Dr. Roland Famasi, who is the executive vice president of Robobank Robo Research, food and agriculture. So, Here we go. 
My name is Roland Famasi and I lead the Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness team for Rabobank in North America. So Rabobank, Rabobank is a very big business in agriculture because it's probably the world's largest ag lender. Am I wrong? You are absolutely correct. We are the largest food and ag focused financial institution in the world headquartered in the Netherlands, but we operate in over 40 countries around the world. And outside the Netherlands, all we do is food and agriculture. Good. But also you do something else because you provide information and you look into the future for people. Tell us a little bit about that service. Oh, absolutely. So we have a team of about 70 analysts positioned globally that serve on the Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness team. And we are tasked with analyzing trends, sometimes mega trends, uh, and how those trends create opportunities for the food and ag system, and how some of those trends might be creating some risks. And then we analyze those things, sometimes very quantitatively, sometimes qualitatively, usually a combination of the two, and then we communicate those conclusions uh, with the food and ag uh, clients that we have around the world. So it pays to be close to somebody who has an eye on the future if you're borrowing money. Absolutely. You bring up a great point. That is, not only do our clients rely on us to help them make the best decisions, but also our, our firm itself, uh, from a risk perspective, uh, relies on our team in Rabo Research so that the bank is making the right decisions as well. Well, thank you very much. That's a, a very interesting insight. He used two words in there that uh, those of us in media use often to judge the validity of an audience, uh, quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative being how much, what's how many people, how much, what's the demographic, uh, what is the income level, blah, 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 blah. As much information of numbers, information, about that target demographic is what you want. Same is true with, with the future of crops. You know, what are the numbers going to really be like? And then, of course, there's the qualitative information. Is In media, we try to figure out what kind of people these people are that we're trying to reach. And um, in banking, I suspect it's the same thing. What kind of information are we really getting out here? Is, is it... Uh, Good information, or is it not so good information? So very interesting to. I would love to sit in on a, on a meeting when uh, they're actually pondering these things. It would be fun to listen to them, uh, but we can kind of guess, right, and see what we think. So let's move right along and meet our, our second person. This is a very interesting person uh, who looks at cows in a very unique sort of way. Good morning, Lucas Fees. I'm a senior dairy analyst with Rabobank, Rabo Agrofinance, and I'm based in Chicago, Illinois. Well, you don't look very senior to me, Lucas. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, uh, I'm just new to the bank. Um, over the past 12 years, I've been doing kind of similar work on dairy market analysis and price outlooks and forecasting. So it's uh, it's wonderful to be able to join Rabobank here this year. How do you look into the future? 
Yeah, I think um, from a dairy perspective specifically, you know, we're coming off of 2022 where I think most farmers made pretty decent money. We saw some months of, depending on the product, record high prices. Uh, but towards uh, the end of last year into Q4, we saw some pretty significant price deterioration. And uh, we're now kind of at a, at a point where a lot of farmers are looking at the futures board and saying, well, I don't know if these are very profitable milk prices for the next few months here. So kind of watching those prices closely, especially with uh, still high cost of production, still high feed costs. Um, I think that the next few months might be a little bit tough, but I do think that into the back half of the year, um, hopefully with China maybe stepping back into the market, 2023 as a whole should be an okay year, even if the next few months are a little bit more challenging from a milk price perspective. Uh, what kind of milk does China buy? Uh, China buys uh, a tremendous variety of products. Um, from a dry product perspective, they're big buyers of whole milk powder. A lot of that, of course, comes from New Zealand. Um, skim milk powder, they kind of have a variety of sources. The U.S. being able to send a little bit more skim to them in recent recent months, recent years. Um, but other products, um, the whey products, uh, China's been a significant buyer of U.S. whey products over the past few years, uh, especially into the second half of 2022, kind of seeing uh, that demand tick a little bit higher. Um, but really, China is a kind of key growing market for basically any and all dairy products. So even if their consumption is kind of lower based on a lot of the rest of the world, there are so many people in the country, it still adds up to, uh, to be a significant buyer of global dairy. Among the things that does have an impact on dairy prices are the dairy alternatives. Mm -hmm. Do you see that have the old those alternative milks, those plant-based milks, having an impact on the future of dairy? I think it's definitely a threat to the industry in some ways, but I also think at the end of the day that you know consumers are going to uh, make a choice with with their with their money, and if they're seeking alternative products, then um, you know that's where dairy has to be able to compete on innovation and maybe new products or different products. Um, you know, I think that fluid milk has been a challenging space for you know almost decades now. We've seen significant uh, year after year year declines in fluid milk consumption. Um, it's been a challenge to do anything significant that's, been, uh, that's kind of moved the needle on that. But the good news is when we look at dairy as a total space, uh, products like cheese or butter or, or protein products all continue to grow. So in terms of total dairy consumption, we continue to see that grow for Americans year after year. Good. One final question. How would you describe Tulare County here in terms of the dairy industry? Yeah. Tulare County is a powerhouse in the dairy world. It's, uh, I grew up on a dairy in upstate New York, and I've spent most of my career in the Midwest. So whenever I come to California and the Central Valley, it's always incredible to see the diversity of agriculture, but also the, uh, the, the strength of the agricultural industry. In dairy specifically, you know, we've got a lot of uh, larger scale dairies, but a lot of uh, very close processing as well. Uh, I think that it's certainly well known in the industry how, uh, how important Tulare County is to dairy, both uh, in California and on a national and global basis. Thank you, Lucas. Well, you know, the real interesting thing about Tulare County is the fact that there's dairy cows there at all, because dairy cows eat, eat grass, green grass, right? And they make milk without of that green grass. Well, there's no green grass in Tulare. It's like desert down there. 
And so it's interesting how cows have moved from the green grass of Wisconsin to to Larry County. One-fifth of all dairy cows in the United States of America are in California. Uh, some years ago, I had the opportunity to give a speech to a bunch of dairy farmers in Drummondville, Quebec. And the occasion was uh, they're wondering what the heck they're going to do. How, how are they going to compete with the industrialized dairy uh, operations in the United States, right across the border there, um, and because they had old-style dairy farms, a, a small number of cows um, for each farm. We're here in California. My goodness, it's total thousands, thousands of cows in in one farm. So it's a, an entirely different model. And uh, so the dairy farmers had me up there to perhaps give them some advice on how small farmers can compete with big farmers, and that's what I do. Um, So it was interesting to to be in the middle of that giant industrial dairy county, Tulare, California. Amazing. So let's move right along because uh, milk is not the only thing that's happening around here. What else is happening? My name is David Magana. I'm a senior analyst uh, for Rabo Research, and I cover uh, fruits and tree nuts for the bank, uh, covering all the way from uh, North America and including also what's happening in, 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 in South America as well. Do some traveling. Uh, I do, and I get the opportunity to see uh, the industry in several um, uh, geographies and also across different um, industries in the in permanent crops, fruits, tree nuts, all the way from British Columbia, and including obviously uh, a lot of what's going on in, in, in California as well. Now, do North American crops look any different than South American crops? to you? Well, one crop mix is different, but we've seen now uh, the production increasing in some of those commodities that consumers want to have availability year-round, namely avocados, berries, things like that which we've seen a significant shift over the past two decades because it was not the case just uh, three, four decades ago. We used to have berries primarily during the summer. And now you go to the store and you have blackberries, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, 52 weeks a year, and fresh and good quality. And we've seen that production um, uh, during the California season increasing, uh, particularly, for example, blueberries uh, in Peru, which is a new powerhouse in, 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 in the fruit industry. So when they tell us to eat in season, that's uh, another trend, and that will continue. This locally grown, uh, the demand for locally grown produce will continue, particularly now for um, uh, eco-conscious consumers that they want uh, 
lower carbon footprint for what they eat but uh, we will continue to see that trend but at the same time we are not able to grow uh, a lot of these uh, locally so we've seen consumers wanting year, this year-round availability and at the same time they want it to be locally grown which is seemingly a contradiction at the same time that they they want they want it to be a perfect quality and organic but sometimes it's challenging and also they want more convenience but at the same time they want less plastic so challenging for agriculture to meet those consumer uh, expectations very interesting insight into how food gets to our grocery stores you know when i open this segment of our serendipitous stroll through the world of ag vis-a-vis uh, -vis the world ag expo in tulare I made notion of that it's almost like magic. You know, every night the grocery stores get filled up with food. And in the morning there's plenty of food to eat. And we just take it for granted. But if you if you listen to the folks from Robo Bank, you see that the, those supply chains go a long ways now to get fresh food to us uh, in season when it's not the season. And thus we have, you know, fresh tomatoes to eat in the middle of winter. And we take it for granted. We, we are owed this. <laughs> and it's a very interesting world in which we can actually have it. Because South America grows what we want when we can't grow it. And we grow uh, what we want when we can grow it. So the availability is almost always there. Also of note was the fascination with colorful fruits, the berries, all of the different colors of berries. Uh, one of the interesting things about the metropolitan consumer is they always want that something different, that variety. They always want to have that which uh, is not a commodity, is something special. Uh, so they can go to their neighbor and say, look at the tomato I got. It's really incredible. So that's the folks from uh, Robobank. So happy to be able to talk with them. I've been an admirer of the bank for a long time, and I got to talk with them. Great thrill. This is the food chain, Michael Olson, a serendipitous walk through the world of Ag Expo. And I'm so happy that you're with me, where when we come back, we're going to meet a lot more interesting people. So, please do stay tuned. So much to say, so little time to say it, on The Food Chain with Michael Olson. Welcome back. This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What? As we stroll along, uh, taking a serendipitous stroll through the World Ag Expo. Why serendipitous? Well, folks, there are 1,200 different exhibits to see and probably a 1,000 people just to meet, not to mention the 108,000 people wandering around the grounds, bumping butts and whatnot. Holy smokes, there's a lot to see and do. So, um, but as we continue our stroll with eyes wide open for a good story, let's 
Think back for a moment to King's farmers of 40 centuries. How did they farm the same parcel of land that had been farmed continuously for 4,000 years and still be able to feed 400 million people? They had no fertilizer. They couldn't go to the feed and seed and buy bags of NPK and throw it on the land because they didn't have any. Uh, So what did they do? Well, in China, during that time, nothing ever went to waste. Everything that once had life was recycled and brought back to life in the soil. So that is a lesson we are trying to learn here in the industrial world, where so much of what we have was once living is simply going to waste. Boof, gone. So let's give a, a listen to some people who have a different idea. My name is Jenna Bunock, and I'm a, a project engineer at California Bioenergy. And I'm Vanessa Hyslip, and I am the Dairy Relations Manager with California Bioenergy. Okay, what is California Bioenergy? So we are a digester development company who works with multiple dairies around California. Um, We've also worked with multiple dairies in South Dakota, Idaho, so we're making our way across the the West. we, what we do is we work with the different dairies around California currently and we collect their manure into a lagoon, a covered lagoon, which we take the methane from there, we clean it up, and we send it to our, our nearest utility company. So waste doesn't... I'm sorry, so what was the so, so it's no longer waste. Uh, correct, yeah. We, methane is a naturally emitting item off of manure, so we capture it, we clean it, and we put it to a good use. What do you do with what's left after that? So it, it depends on the dairy farmer. The dairy farmer likes to use what's left after that, um, sometimes for bedding, sometimes for um, fertilization. It really just depends on who the dairy is and what they want to do with it. And that would be a great service to the community if you can take what was a waste and turn it into energy. Correct, yep, we're cleaning up the air little by little. It says one cow can fuel a car across the country. You gotta give me a hint how this works. So actually, um, what we've been working on are electric projects also. So we've teamed up with Bloom Energy who's developed what's called fuel cells. So we actually take the manure from the cows and we fuel up Bloom Energy's fuel cells and it's able to power an electric vehicle. Would that be the world famous David Bloom? I think so. I don't know the answer to that. I think so. I think it's David Bloom. Yeah, I think it's David Bloom. So. Well, and we've had David Bloom on the Food Chain Radio program over the years, many times. Um, He's a neighbor and a friend, and uh, we love his crazy science, which brings hope always. But, you know, thinking back now, when we talked about F.H. King and those farmers of 40 centuries, one of the uh, quotes from the book was that he was watching a farmer coming down the road, and he had his manure pails swinging over his shoulders. You kind of picture that classical Chinese image of two two, uh, manure uh, buckets on the end of a pole. And so that's what they were doing. They were collecting manure and spreading it on the fields. So in a sense, that's what these gals at California Bioenergy were doing as well. 
They were taking what was waste and turning it into energy, and um, and various products that that uh, farmers could use in their fields. So pretty cool stuff, don't you think? So let's move right along. And um, of course, when we talk about California, we always have to talk about water. My name is Derek Grabo. I'm uh, the son of Keith Grabo, who's the owner of Grabo Well Drilling. We're based out of Hanford, California. Okay. And uh, turn this way so the, you'll walk the oh, that's land. Why. There you go. Okay, good. And uh, how long have you been drilling for water? Uh, my dad started this one back up six years ago. I'm the sixth generation, and then my son's the seventh generation. So uh, we came from Denmark uh, back in the 1890s, and then uh, Central Valley in 1903. So I've been drilling ever since. We hear a lot about water and the need for water here in the Central Valley. We know that uh, water has been tough for the last few years. People have to keep drilling deeper and deeper and deeper. How deep are you going these days? Uh, the deepest that we've gone is 1,500. That's just with our the equipment. That's how much it can be, be rated for with all the weight. Um, but there's uh, people that go about 2,000 uh, in between 2,000 to 3,000, which is you know extremely deep. Uh, a lot more uh, costly the deeper you go and the more materials and stuff like that so are you seeing the need to go deeper and deeper uh, pretty much throughout the valley yeah uh, yeah I'd say majority um, 90 percent of them are replacement wells so the the ones that they have ha have either broke or have gone dry and then with go past what uh, that depth was so so you have to keep going deeper and deeper correct any solutions um I think all the solutions are going to be in the government. I think a lot of things needs to change over there to, to get water to us and uh, to you know save more water. Um, and then uh, the other solution is just going to have to pray for more rain. Uh, and that's about it, really. So, See a lot of signs throughout the valley. No water, no food. No, exactly. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that the... They think the water comes straight from the tap or straight from the bottle, straight, straight from the store, but, you know, it comes out of the ground and uh, it takes work to get it from there. So, uh, but, you know, we, we, don't only, we don't only just have uh, water to drink, but it's for uh, irrigation, for uh, dairies, for farms, uh, cows, um, you know, everything above that, that goes in the, the stores. So maybe we can all buy water from Fiji in little plastic bottles and we'll have enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt it comes from Fiji, but it's a good marketing brand. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, had an interesting thing to say. People are in the Central Valley of California are going 2,000 feet deep into the, into the aquifers to find water, which essentially is telling us that California is shriveling up like a prune, drying in the, in the sun. Now, we have some pretty good technology. We can go deep for the water. But when, we, when we're out of water, we're out of water. It's not like money you can print, the like government can print and say, oh, look, we have all kinds of, of water. Can't do that with water. Water is not like money that can be printed. It's either there or it's not there. Hasn't been in California for a while. Thankfully, the rains fell this year. Reservoirs got filled. But you know, most of that water just ran out into the ocean uh, because we do not have the provisions to capture a lot of rainwater and let it percolate back into the aquifers where it's desperately needed. So, you know, that's just the fact of life in California where 
whiskey is for drinking, and water is for fighting. So let's go back to those dairy cows for a minute that we were talking about in Tulare. Um, one out of every five dairy cows lives in California, which is home to 1,100 dairy farms housing 1.72 million dairy cows. Well, what the heck does that mean, Olson? Well, it means that the average dairy farm in California is home to 1,564 cows. This industrialization does cause some problems. You know, when you're up in Quebec with those small dairy farms, uh, family-owned operations, managing the um, the excrement and, and the other things that come out of a dairy cow was relatively easy. You spread it on the ground and it grew grass and you fed the grass to the cows and so you had a little ecosystem going there. But not so in California. When you have 1,564 cows in one farm, you've got a lot of fecal matter to take care of, and that does cause some problems. Um, just think about it for a minute. Close your eyes and imagine yourself in charge of 1,500 uh, dairy cows. Mmm, that's a job. Uh, one of the problems you might have to deal with is the odor that arises from your enterprise to cover the surrounding countryside. And then there would be flies. How in the heck can one deal with these kinds of problems? Uh, the Fog Company. What the heck is the Fog Company? I'm walking by this place, and it says the Fog Company. I can't believe there's a Fog Company who would want to buy fog. Well, if you have a dairy farm and you have a lot of, of smell to deal with, to protect, you have to protect your neighbors from what comes off your farm. And uh, smell is one. And flies are another. Well, they can manage a lot of that with fog machines, and that's what the fog company was all about. Uh, it's kind of interesting to think that in in the heart of, of California's great Central Valley, they would be selling machines that make fog. Uh, if anybody knows about the Thule fog that lives there, you go, oh my goodness, it's like selling ice cream to Eskimos or something, ice to Eskimos. It, doesn't seem reasonable to have that as a need. Well, that said, so so much for Dana, and now we'll try the Westlands Water District here. Hi, I'm Chuck Toronto from Westlands Water District here at the Ag Show. I'm the supervisor of operations, and we're just trying to uh, raise awareness for the water situation in California. Well, I have to ask, because everybody wonders, why is the Westlands Water District always short of water? Well, I think it's we don't get allocated as much as we believe we should um, based on the system, the abilities of the system, if they were um, managed maybe differently. What can California do to get Westland's Water District more water? You're going to need to talk to her. Okay. So the interesting thing about the Westlands Water District is it is on the southwestern part of the San Joaquin Valley uh, on Interstate 5. So driving through the area, you see thousands of acres of prime farmland in which crops no longer grow. 
And one local, this is where people always post their signs that read, food grows where water flows, and also signs that curse politicians. Uh, in fact, the Westland Water District is at the end of California's political water hose and can only get water after all the others get theirs first. And the problem with farmers is that city people have the vote. And what the city people want to do with the water is not what the farmers need to, them to do with all that water. So, once again, in California, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. You know, it's been said that uh, a Frenchman put, put this on the plate a century ago, two ago. He said, we are what we eat. Well, Michael Olson says, if that is true, it follows that we are what our food eats. So we're going to take a quick listen and go from there. Sure, Russell Taylor with Live Earth Products out of Emory, Utah. Live Earth? What do you mean Live Earth? Live Earth. Well, we're trying to get away from dead earth <laughs> and get more into Live Earth. We're promoting the, the beneficial use of organic acids to promote and retain nutrient use and improve soil health. What do you mean by organic acid? So humic acids and fulvic acids are the end result of decomposition. So think of it as really, really old compost. We're actually mining a plant deposit that's 75 million years old. What would be a semi-tropical forest like the Amazons now is the deposit we're mining from millions of years ago. And how do you prepare this for the soil? So it's a real simple process. We, um, it's just a mining process where you excavate it and pull it out of the ground. Uh, no complicated um, chemical treatments or anything. It's just old plant material. So we mine it, screen it, bag it for sale. Um, does it help plants grow in the sense that nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium help plants grow? Yes and no. So humic acids and our organic acids are a component of your soil organic matter. When you talk about soil organic matter, you're actually talking about some of these organic acids. Now, we categorize our organic acids in two different categories, passive and active, ones that are being actively broken down by the microbes, and those that are leftovers. So humic acids and fulvic acids are the result of microbial degradation. So they help with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium by retaining those nutrients. So making those nutrients last longer and be more available to the plant. It's kind of like setting the buffet for the plant for the nutrients, but they're not a nutrient themselves. How does it help plants grow then? So by making nutrients more available, we make a more efficient use of those applied nutrients. So often uh, farmers will lose their fertilizers by leaching, volatilization, mineralization, and adding these organic acids helps stabilize the nutrient so the plant has a longer opportunity to absorb and use those nutrients. Well, there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our third stroll, third edition of our serendipitous stroll through the World of Ag at uh, the World Ag Expo in Tulare. Please do stay tuned as we talk with Guy George, a 92-year-old farmer, about life on the farm. Going to be very interesting.
You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at MetroFarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live.